according to the scripture, we just proclaimed the Lord's death. And for the early church, proclaiming the Lord's death by meeting publicly in worship and taking Lord's Supper meant possible ridicule, persecution, even, even death. For us in our day and age, now that church is no longer a cultural expectation, there's no external pressure forcing you to come to church on Sunday and proclaim the Lord's death. And though at this time we may not do so at risk of great persecution or death, certainly the world says, don't these people know they don't need to give up their Sunday anymore? Don't they know that this tradition is just tradition? And yet we are proclaiming to the world that Jesus is real, He is God, He is the Son of God, and His death and resurrection means something ultimately It purchased our salvation, and it's the only way to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. So thank you for gathering this morning and proclaiming the Lord's death together. It strengthens my faith. I hope it strengthens your faith, and it's a great testimony to the world. With that, please turn to Genesis 22, where we were last week. There is a, a kids' activity sheet if you don't have one already. This is a point in the curriculum that we use Sunday morning where there's a review week. So they schedule review Sundays in. So this would be a review Sunday. What a perfect Sunday for a celebration Sunday. We have not as much time as usual during the sermon. So it's a shorter message this morning kind of looking at where, how we got to Genesis 22. And we said last week that if we just opened our Bibles and read Genesis 22 without any context, it would be a rather scary story that this voice from heaven, God, would ask us to take our adult child, we reckon that Isaac's in his early 20s at this point, and we're looking at these graduates up there, up here who are 18, so we're in the ballpark, so we have a very good visual. And to take them to Mount Moriah and sacrifice them to God, literally. And because we're Christians, we understand that the story points ultimately to Christ. It's easier to digest the story, but think in God's revelation... Those before Christ, God-fearers before Christ, didn't have the reality of the cross to fall back on. Oh, God really didn't want Abraham to sacrifice his son on the mountain. This is all about Jesus dying on the cross. They, they didn't have that reality to let them off the hook. So as we read through God's word from Genesis to Revelation, we have to keep that in mind. Whatever the story meant to the original hearers has to be the first thing that it means to us. What transcendent truth was true for Abraham that will be true for us as well? Yes, we saw that ultimately the story was pointing to Christ. But what did Abraham learn? What was the point of God taking him through that? The passage started out saying, and 
God tested Abraham. When a passage begins with those words, you take note and you realize this passage is about a test. Then as we read through the passage, we see a word pop up over and over and over again. And when you study your Bible and you see a word repeated often in a passage, that's important. Underline it. Circle it. Highlight it. The word I want to bring your attention to this morning is provide. Provide. Genesis 22, 8. Abraham said, after his son had asked him, Father, we have the fire, we have the wood, where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. After Abraham binds Isaac, puts him on the altar, and raises the knife over his head, the angel of the Lord appears and says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now keep in mind that when a regular angel comes to speak, they say, God says this to you. This angel says, Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is the angel of the Lord that theologians, most theologians agree, is a Christophany. It's Jesus Christ come in the person of, or in the image of the angel of the Lord. And we said last week that in the New Testament, after Jesus comes in the flesh, we never see another reference to the angel of the Lord. We call this a Christophany. Christophany. And the irony is thick for us as New Testament believers because we realize that ultimately Jesus is the Lamb that God provided as a substitute for us. So here's the Lamb itself, Himself, saying, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not lay a hand on the boy. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. You can't get any clearer explanation of substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament maybe than this line. Offered up the burnt offering in the place of his son, except for us, it's the other way around. Offered up his son in the place of us. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. There's that word provide. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. What is that place today? Nothing less than the place of the temple on Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, the holy city. Not far on those same mountains, Calvary, where the Lord indeed provided salvation. As we've been reading through the Old Testament, we've been seeing ever since Adam failed the test in the garden, 
that each successive man has also failed. But in Genesis 3.15, God promised, promised that by the woman's seed, a Redeemer would come. Somebody who would pass the test where Adam had failed. And so, that is the drama that drives the whole story of the Bible. Where's the seed? Is it, is it Abel? Is it Cain? No. Is it Seth? No. Is it Noah? No. Is it Shem? No, but the seed's running through this line. Is, is it, could it be Abram? Could it be Abram? And yet we've seen Abram fail tests. Never quite completely trusting in God's providence until we get to this story and he trusts God with the most precious thing he could possibly trust him with, his son, his only son, the child of promise. The child God promised him. The child God said, through this child, I will make you a great nation. I I will give you seed and land and a great nation, and I will bless you. And I'll bless all the nations of the earth through you. And as we're reading through the story, if we were not New Testament saints and we didn't know how the story ends, we would be saying at this point... If somebody's going to come and pass the test where Adam failed, I'm beginning to think that it's going to have to be God himself. But, can God take the place of a man if we're looking for a man to fulfill the creation mandate God gave mankind? To fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion to the glory of God. We can't seem to find a man that can fulfill this, but if God came and did it, it wouldn't be man fulfilling it. So it almost seems like someone who's God and man needs to come and pass the test where the first man failed. The story's headed in that direction. And we as New Testament saints understand, yes, that person is Jesus Christ, the God-man. When he did come and claim to be God, he ruffled many feathers. His people were not looking for a God-man, but after he died and rose and was on the road to Emmaus, as we saw in the video, he explained, all of this story was about me. Now you know why the God-man had to come and pass the test where the first man failed and every other man since has failed. What was the test the first man failed? Really, it was a failure to trust in God's providence. Now, when we say providence, most of us immediately think about money. God provides money, because we need money to buy stuff and to live, and we never seem to have enough of it. And so, we're always praying that God will provide. God will provide. God will provide. And then sometimes... That prayer might leak into, oh, we've got a a gap in ministry and we need somebody to fill that gap. God will provide, so we start praying for volunteers. When somebody's sick, we start to pray, well, I guess we need to pray for God to provide healing. 
And our definition of providence begins to expand, but how far does your definition of providence go? Is it, I'll provide all of this and God will get the rest? God helps those who help themselves? You know, that verse that's not in the Bible? Let me read you a quote from um, a professor at University of Texas at Austin. I never can pronounce his name. It's like Jay Bazuski. It's one of those Polish names with more consonants than vowels. There's like one vowel and 15 consonants, that kind of name. A few years ago on graduation day, the book we gave the graduates was How to Stay Christian in College by this author. I still highly recommend that book. And so you can go on Amazon.com and search by title, not by author, because I can't spell his name, and just punch in How to Stay Christian in College, first book that'll come up. He was raised in the church because he's from the South, and everybody's raised in the church in the South, from what I hear. And he abandoned the faith because of intellectualism. He didn't want to be considered unintellectual or unsophisticated. And then he came back to Christ, and now he's really shines the light for Jesus in a very on a very hostile campus. UT Austin is the liberal enclave in Texas, from what I understand. True, Andy? Yeah, all the artsy people hang out in Austin. So, but he's very vocal about his faith on campus. And in an interview with um, World Magazine which is actually a Christian publication. It's not like Worldly magazine. It's a good magazine. I, I recommend a subscription to it. They're interviewing him about his faith and asked when did he eventually become a follower of Christ. He said, fundamentally, I had abandoned him because I didn't want God to be God and wanted myself to be God. The usual reason. Why that just brings it into focus. When... We think about our own unbelief and those that we're witnessing to, and we try to come up with all kinds of clever reasons why they're this close to coming to Christ. This close is often farther away than we'd like to think, because the ultimate thing that keeps us from God is, I don't want God to be God, and I want myself to be God. He said, but I found that it's hard to place limits on the denial of fundamental reality, it became harder and harder to believe anything at all. What he's saying is, okay, well, I don't want God to be creator of the universe because all the people I want to impress believe something else. So God can't be that. I also don't want him to be the author of life. I'm going to lean on Darwinian evolution. And while we're at it, I don't want God to be judge. I want man to be able to make up his own morality, moral relativism. And as you start taking away all the things from God, you realize I've taken everything away from God for what it means to be God. And he was holding on to a little piece of, I still want God to be there just in case. And God can't be that. He's either everything he's revealed to be or or he's nothing. There can't be a middle ground. 
Either you surrender all, or you haven't really surrendered. And so he said, after a dozen years, God granted me the perception that my own condition was objectively evil. My own, able, my own ability to perceive life on my own terms and figure it out without God's re- revelation is what was broken. I can't come to the right answers if I'm starting with my own intellect. Because it's broken, it's fallen, it's bent away from the truth. This broke through all my denials when I realized that I had been wrong about everything. I gave in completely and returned to Him. What he's really saying is he had to learn to trust in God's providence according to a biblical definition of providence. So I want to give you that definition this morning, really give you this to think about as we sing worship songs about I surrender all and you are everything This is what it means. We may define God's providence as follows, according to Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. That's a huge statement. We're saying God's providence is that if it were not for God, there'd be nothing in existence but God. So God's providence provided existence for everything material and spiritual. And He maintains the properties with which He created them. Everything functions the way it's supposed to function because He's providing the power to uphold all of that. When we wake up tomorrow, the laws of gravity and the all kinds of cosmological constants and the speed of light and all these things are going to be what He created them to be because He's going to keep them that way. The universe isn't going to fall into chaos. We're also acknowledging, number one there, that if not for God, there'd be no us. Not only no us, but nowhere to live out our lives. Number two, that God's providence cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. He's the power behind why everything works the way that it works. See, it's getting really hard to squeeze God out of your life and compartmentalize Him over here. If He created all things and sustains all things, and by His power works in and through all things. And if that wasn't enough, number three directs them to fulfill His purposes. What God has desired to accomplish in history will come about because of His providence. In a way that our actions have meaning and purpose. I know that's a difficult concept and we could talk about it until we go home to be with the Lord and that's when we'll understand it. We're not going to understand how God's providence and human action work together. You just trust that they do. It's what the Bible's revealed to us. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we won't get the answer, we just won't care about the question anymore. Either way, we'll be satisfied. So what has God provided then? He's provided existence. 
He's provided our lives. He's given us purpose. These are big concepts here, people, right? It's not the small stuff He's provided. Oh yeah, He provides that too. But really, compared to existence, life, purpose, justice, there's ultimate justice in the universe. There's love. There's mercy. There's grace. In short, there's a story, a real story that we're part of. It's not like one of those movies like The Matrix where we're going to wake up one day and realize it's all a dream. It's real life and He's provided it. Can you come to grips with that? Can you trust that God is everything? He's all in all. Abraham had to learn not just to trust God for a son, but for everything. And because he learned to trust God's providence in everything, trusting Him with his beloved son became easy in a sense. Well, of course I'm going to trust God with my son. He gave me a son. We were too old to have our own son. Even if they weren't too old, our children are a gift from God. He opens the womb. He blesses with children. He gives us life. He gives us every day, every breath we have on this planet. He's given us this planet to live on. He's given us purpose, meaning, trajectory in life. He's given us hope, confidence that evil has been defeated. How do we know we can trust God with all this? Well, one answer is that without God, there isn't all this. So you say, well, I guess there has to be a God then. You're right. If there's no God, then none of this exists. But there's no love and trust in that voice at all. It's kind of a, well, I guess I, guess I have to believe in God. That's not what God is looking for. He wants us to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So how do we know we can trust God? How can we trust His providence? And we have Genesis 22. It helps us. If Father Abraham is intended to be a type or an illustration of our Heavenly Father, right? So in that story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham is playing the role of God the Father. Isaac's playing the role of Jesus Christ. And when God tells Abraham, now I know that you fear God, trust God, fears, word for trust, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, we understand that what we're being taught through this story is now we can say to God, now I know I can trust you because you have not withheld your son your only son, from me. And this is the argument that Paul makes in Romans 5. Listen to this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Why? Why, Paul? Why can we exult in tribulations? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character brings hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, is get, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, helpless, couldn't provide for ourselves. Helpless, could not provide for ourselves. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For someone would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The argument is, if this God would not withhold his Son, his only begotten Son, to save us from death, how much more then can we trust in his providence to provide everything we need in life? Right? Amen. If He gave us the best He has to get us out of death, what will He give us in life? He's not going to chintz on us after that. He's already given us His best. We can trust in God's providence. And through our trials and tribulations, He's teaching us to trust more and more in that providence. Last time I preached on God's providence was right after my son broke his arm. Guess what? Same son, same arm, broken again. Don't call CPS on us. We have witnesses. It happened when Nathan was in charge. Ah. You know, but we've just gotten to that place, just like you, where with your finances, you're like, I think we can see daylight. Oh, back to the ER. God provides. He will. He's teaching us, teaching me, certainly. Don't put your trust in your emergency savings. Have an emergency savings account, but don't put all your trust there. God provides. I have to apologize to my own son because I think I'm so dull to learn this lesson that he has to keep teaching me through the same object lesson. We were driving to the hospital and I said, trying to cheer him up, guess what, son? Sunday sermon's about God's providence. He'll provide us good doctors. Everything's going to be fine. And he said, are you going to use me as an illustration again? And I said, I think they're tired of that illustration. Or I'm going to start telling the story and they're going to go, we heard this one already. I'm like, oh, you haven't heard this one. Different story, same arm. And God provides. 
I can trust Him with my son because He gave me His son. Amen? Wow, what a one-to-one relationship there. This is what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't put that kind of faith in a God he didn't know. God has been building a relationship with Abraham so he could trust God. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you're just going through the motions, I don't expect you to have much trust in His providence. And so this morning, I want you to really think about your relationship with Christ. Do I know God? Does He know me? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's what it means that He's Lord and Savior. I must believe that He exists, that He is who He says He is, that God is all that He has revealed Himself to be. Even though when we read this book, He's so much bigger than we could ever conjure up a God in our head. He's beyond what I can comprehend in this book. That is who He is. Do you believe He exists? Is He Lord? Or do you try to shrink Him down into some human version that you can comprehend? Because then He doesn't need to be Lord. Like Jay Budzinski says, I didn't want Him to be God. I wanted to be God. And do you believe that He rewards those who seek Him? That is Savior. He's not your Lord and Savior so that you can go get all these things in life that you've wanted. This isn't the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. When you come to Him as Lord and Savior, you're trusting in God's character and His goodness so much and that that because He didn't withhold His Son from me, I can trust whatever it is He's going to provide for me has got to be the best thing for me. And it turns out that the best thing that He's providing for us is Him. Not stuff, not temporary peace here on earth, not all our troubles go away. Him. And when we get that, everything else falls into place. We get Him. Eternal life, relationship with God forever. This is what He is offering as Savior. Is that what you want? Do you believe He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him? Ultimately, the Lord has provided Himself to us. This is how we know we can trust Him. Remember last week, John eight fifty six. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This is how he can offer Isaac up, because he rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Yes, he had the seed, he had the nation, he had the land, he had the blessing, but the Bible tells us Abraham knew there was something better than even all of that. Jesus, the better seed, a land, a heavenly land, a nation, all believers, a great nation, worshiping God, and eternal blessings. Are those the things you have your eyes set on? Are you satisfied with all that the Lord provides? The whole whole shebang, the whole ball of wax, Existence, the way the world's created, the way the world operates, the story he's writing, the way it turns out. 
Can you trust in all that providence? Now, the way you can trust in all that, Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Stop fighting against God's providence and accept it and embrace it. Because really you're embracing Him when you embrace His providence. Then when you sing, all I need is Jesus. He's my everything. He's my all in all. You understand what that means. And we don't have to walk out of this place singing that and then grabbing hold of this world for dear life again. Hang on to Jesus. Don't let go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your providence. We see Abram, the great father, but you are the great father. Abraham, the father of many. Jesus, you are the better Abraham. The spiritual father of all those born again. The better Isaac, a better sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice. Lord, we are beginning to understand what it means that you are all in all and all things happen in you and through you. Teach us to trust you. Lord, now we know you love us and we can trust you because you did not withhold your son, your only son from us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.